Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. Today, we continue our tour guide duties, pointing out where we see God at work as we journey through this ministry life with its inevitable changes on the horizon. Today, we continue this work with a closer look at what it means to be people that are gospel-centered. One of the big questions before us is whether or not the gospel is good news for all of life or something that solely has eternal ramifications. To help us grapple with the answers to these questions, we have yet another guest. And this time, they're interviewed by my co-host, Ryan Fasani. Here's the conversation he had with a longtime friend and fellow guerrilla pastor hailing from the Big Island of Hawaii. So, ladies and gentlemen, followers and listeners of the Guerrilla Pastor Podcast, let me introduce you to my friend and fellow radical, Eric Paul. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's so good to be with you, talk with you, um, and really share on the Guerrilla Podcast. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. It is our honor. Hey, let me kick it off here um, just with a reminder. The Guerrilla Pastors this year have decided we're going to cover four major topics um, that, uh, that are undergoing a major transition in the life of the church and in God's work in our communities. The first one, of course, is no small undertaking. We are exploring for the next couple months the idea and concept of the gospel, the good news, and how uh, we are necessarily transitioning from a former understanding of the gospel to a new, reimagined, wider, deeper understanding of the gospel. And Eric is going to help us imagine what that looks like. But more importantly, he's going to do that by connecting it to his life story and the current ministry work that he does as a guerrilla pastor. So Eric, let's kick it off with this question. What do you say, of course, in your terms, that goes without saying, um, the traditional understanding of the gospel is in your experience? And when did that break down for you? Hmm. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> like many people, they probably inherited their first understanding of gospel for those that grew up in, in the church. Um, and I, I certainly did. And I grew up in the currents of the evangelical faith and I'll just name it. This was about 30 years ago. Um, and at a time when evangelicals, you know, began to identify more concretely in what has been historicized as the rise of the Christian right, um, evangelical Christians, including my childhood Nazarene church, would probably name the following as their gospel markers. Um, individual decision made by me to have God save me from my sins the Bible as the true word of God, um, and kind of a spirit of evangelism to convert those who have yet to believe in this version of the gospel. Um, so this was kind of my inherited understanding of the gospel, and it hewed very closely to uh, really the uh, the best thing that comes to my mind is the Sunday school picture, right, of the, the two cliffs. <laughs> uh, one side had sinful humanity, the other side had God's holiness, and this cross acted as the bridge that kept us from falling into the fires that were underneath and in between those two cliffs. So when when I was six, I prayed to God for forgiveness of all my little childhood sins, which I probably wasn't quite aware of and still can't remember to this day, um, because those fires seemed pretty scary to me. And my family and my church celebrated. So those were those were probably those the gospel markers and a little bit of my my experience growing up, uh, at least from from what I inherited. Um, so, so let me get this right, just because this is such a critical uh, kind of foundational understanding that I share with you. Um, if I were to capture in an image, it would be that tract 
where you've got the two opposing cliffs with a massive gap, and you might call that gap sin. One cliff, of course, being God, or salvation, if you will, and the other cliff being the one you're standing on, and you simply cannot cross the chasm, right? We're getting, this is the same image you're referring to, right? Yes. And then, and then in the, maybe the other side of the tract, if you will, is a, the alternate picture, which is a, a cross that like just sinks right across and works right across and connects those two cliffs. Right? That is correct. Track? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah. when when did this break down for you? Well, I want to. I do want to pause right here, um, because at the exact same time that all of this was happening in my in my faith, um, and what I understood as the gospel to be, and you know, I was at church every every Sunday morning night and every Wednesday. Um, and, uh, you know, this, I was concerned mostly during that, that time from about the age of seven until about the age of like 16 or 17 with flying, right? Flying planes and fighting. And my imagination like w- would routinely drift toward fighter jets, guns and bullets and military history. So a fun afternoon for me was reading about Roman victories in an encyclopedia (laughs) or my notebooks at school, which were filled with sketches of F-16 fighter jets, right? I dreamed of going into the Air Force and my playtime, my playtime was filled with me being the hero fighting against the enemy, right? I would be a musketeer um, or uh, Davy Crockett. And, you know, and this is something now I look back on as an adult, but it never mattered who the enemy was. I was perfectly willing to accept the enemies of both God and country. And my, my faith never challenged that. My Christian upbringing um, never challenged that story. And so they acted in kind of parallel strains. God can forgive me from my sins, and I can go on with this uh, kind of violent imagination. Um, and I remember, I remember when I was 16, and 9-11 happened. And I watched as the second tower fell. And I was, I was gripped with both this fear and shock that this was happening, right? I saw, I literally saw, it was 8.30, 9 a.m. I was in geometry class. <laughs> and my teacher had turned on the TV because we, she had heard you know, reports of something that was happening. And I saw people jumping to their death out of the t- tower live on TV. That same morning, my dad was flying from Washington, D.C. to Texas. And I did not know if the plane he was on was the one that hit the Pentagon or the one that crashed in Pennsylvania, because both of those came from from Washington. And 18 months later, I was a senior in high school, springtime, about to graduate, and the U.S. invaded Iraq. And I remember watching the bombs over Baghdad. What, um, What was it called? The shock and awe campaign, right? And I watched it at work in this this quiet reverence. Finally, the USA was carrying out its response. Finally, there would be what I would consider both justice and vengeance, and we would be vindicated. And I had these feelings of both fear and vengeance, and and the gospel I had inherited didn't address those. Neither my, my fear nor this desire to, for vengeance for what happened on 9-11. Because I was given this kind of individualized understanding of faith. The individual acts of violence were considered sinful. I couldn't go murder someone. 
But collective violence against a perceived enemy was at minimum excused and at times glorified. Wow. 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 I mean, that is such a potent memory in that. I mean, the details of it, of course, are shocking. Um, and you, to be, to be honest, you tell it, retold it really well. I mean, it took me back to that time when, where in the time and space where I was when it happened. But the thing that gripped me, Eric, was the vast, I mean, speaking of chasms between two cliffs, I'm picturing a chasm between the gospel as it was, um, as it was taken on as a like a as a individualized kind of reality like something that only reached insofar as literally like your personhood and the other end of the chasm i mean a distance that you could could not reach and out and even touch with your imagination was how this violent reality was playing out on the global landscape and the gospel that was within had nothing to say nothing to say or do as it related to that sort of landscape is that accurate yeah i would i would say that the the gospel that i inherited was very heart-centered very spiritualized mm -hmm. right it was something that was interior um it it was meant to um cleanse me and of my sins and put me in right standing righteous standing before god um and that was jesus's work on the cross for me mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and the the other things of the what was the challenges of the outside world whether it be violence war poverty trauma um you know issues of of the degradation of creation uh didn't really touch the faith that i was given wow okay so you reach clearly a crisis point I mean, I, 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 want, I wanted to hear it in your words, but I'm like feeling this build, right? Like, okay, so here's this sort of, this, uh, you know, um, G.I. Joe writ large on the political, you know, the geopolitical world here. I mean, it was closer to home than we were used to. The gospel that, you know, was for one's personal heart and personal salvation did not have the faculty to reach out and, and explain or process or address that. So take us a little further in your story. What happens? Is there a crisis? When, when, does, when does that gospel break open, melt down? You run with it. Yeah. Um, it, so it wasn't at that moment, right, of, of um, seeing bombs over Baghdad. Um, that for me was a, a type of vindication. And I, I didn't think about it from a faith perspective at all. I, I almost, it was almost like this celebration of like, finally, you know, we're doing something. Um, it wasn't until several years later that I had a different kind of experience. Um, when I was 20, I read two books that changed my life. Um, and, and I don't want to pretend like this happened in a vacuum either, like that it was just me and two books and without any <laughs> other kind of influence. Sure. Um, Right. Because I recognize my parents gave me an open curiosity about learning. Right. Um, I was in the middle of taking Christian ministry and theology classes at Olivet Nazarene University. They, they gave me the language, the kind of theological framework and understanding to be able to understand what I was about to read. And uh, and I had friends. Right? I had a group of friends at college at Olivet who encouraged me to read these books and then talk about them. So I had that kind of environment that was ripe. Um, so my sophomore year, I read uh, two books over Christmas break. 
It was a two-week period. And it was John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. And after I read those two within that two weeks, there was there was no going back to what mm. was before. Um, there was what I can only describe as this um, this experience of seeing and understanding uh, both within my mind and my body uh, an experience of truth that what I had just ex- that I, what I had just read was true. And I can only attribute that to the work of the Spirit. Uh, one of the things that pops up when I'm talking about this is um, Shane Claiborne is often will say, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Or in other words, if Jesus is Lord, all other allegiances are called into question. Yeah. Wow. So, so you were struck. You were struck by the communal and political and public nature of the good news as it ought to be bent towards or bent like Christ in Christ likeness, which all sounds so almost cliche, right? But what it does <laughs> is it is it it forces that uh, domestic kind of gospel that made sense in your chest and in your heart and in your personal ethic, and it forces it way beyond you. Maybe your 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 um your family. Um, and maybe your neighborhood and your local church, it literally forces it onto the public, social, global stage, right? Which you haven't said this, but I'm going to insert it. I'm going I'm to ask you to run with it, which forces then you to ask, what is the way of Christ as it relates to the planes flying into the buildings and our shock and awe in response, right? And so you've named already that this is a nonviolent way of Christ. So I want you to take it, take it from there. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so there was that experience as a senior in high school in which I saw the bombs over Baghdad and, and felt vindicated, right? That this was somehow justice, that we were finally getting even through this violent act. And that for me is juxtaposed with another experience. Um, after I had been introduced to Bonhoeffer and Yoder and, um, and, had kind of gone into the into that uh theological stream of thought um and ate it up i had another experience um so i remember one night president obama uh comes onto my tv literally (laughs) interrupts my program (laughs) and he makes this address to the nation and he says that there was a a team of Navy SEALs, SEAL Team 6, that has captured and killed Osama bin Laden. And this was one of those moments that struck as this um, juxtaposition and feelings between what I had felt as a high schooler and what I now felt as a young adult. And I was in the room with folks with me who at the, the, the news of Osama bin Laden being killed, that this man who had, was the architect um, in, of, of 9-11 um, was now dead. And there was celebration in the room. And all I could feel was sadness. 
all I could feel was this, this grief, this almost like lament of, of like Psalm 40. How long, oh God, how long will we continue as a people to mete out violence with more violence? And I, in that moment, I, re, I, I remember thinking how much killing there had been in that 10 years. How many families had been ripped apart? How much, how much infrastructure uh, throughout the Middle East had been destroyed? How many decades it would take for those who are now left in poverty to be able to, to try to climb their way out of it? And it struck me as this is probably a more faithful response to the world's violence than this celebration of, of vengeance. That sadness and grief and lament should be our first response as Christians when we hear of violence, even violence toward our enemies. Well, how, how long uh, was it from 9-11 until that address by Obama? Do you, do you know? Or do you, I mean, we could figure it out quickly, but just off the top of your head, are we talking five, ten? Ten years. About 10 years. So 9-11, so t- 2001, and that happened 2011. Okay, so 10 years. So in that decade, you went through a radical transformation as it relates to your understanding of the gospel. And and that's not like some technical statement that is, is sort of lofty, right? Like that is very much a young, zealous person called into ministry studying theology that inter- there that has an internal landscape of optimism and possibility and support of violence to 10 years later like deep heavy grief in response to something that is akin to that original experience right like yes both which is profound profound in how it addresses violence how it understands what it means to follow Jesus into the world, what it means to process and understand and relate to our enemies. I mean, I could make a list of a hundred reasons that pragmatically matters, right? For you, Eric, what did that mean on a day-to-day basis? Let me, let me put a finer point on that. How did the, your, your changed understanding of gospel matter in your life at that point? Yeah. First, I want to flesh out what this new understanding of gospel is for me. Fair. Go for it. Uh, um, so, I, you know, I've been working now years trying to, trying to um, put language to these experiences. Um, oftentimes, I feel like I've found the language, but then need to find the experiences to, <laughs> to make them true. Um, so it works both ways for me, right? Um, but the, 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 most poignant reference to gospel for me is from what we call the gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and particularly Mark chapter one. And Jesus comes uh, and he, he uh, is baptized and he comes proclaiming that the time has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near, right? Now we have this lordship term, right? Kingdom of God. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the heart of Jesus' message, and, and it comes alongside the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus throughout the gospel story. 
And that becomes for me this kind of interpretive lens, this interpretive key for unlocking how to understand scripture as a whole. In particular, I want to just point out that Mark chapter 1, this phrase in 1 verse 15, refers to Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So here in in Mark chapter 1, Jesus references uh, the prophets, Isaiah 52 in particular, in which there's a coalescence between this announcement of peace right? This idea of shalom, of wholeness, of harmony, of that which is broken and being made well, of that which is dying and being given life, right? Those relationships that feel strain are being made well. And that this is what it means to, to bring good news, right? And that is also encompassed in our de- idea of, of salvation, that, that God's kingdom has come, that it's not meant to stay Um, in some other realm called heaven, but as we pray, your kingdom come on earth, right? So for me, the gospel is wrapped up in those key concepts and the best way I can understand it, the best way I can put it, um, and there are many ways to be able to describe it, right? But for me, the gospel is reconciliation. Hmm. The gospel is reconciliation. The work of peace, justice, reconciliation throughout scripture remains close to the heart of God. And, and in fact, reconciliation between it's between ourself and God, right? Evangelicals got it part right. <laughs> and they, they focus, though, they focus, though, too small. Gospel is so much bigger than the inherited evangelical faith that I was given. And so it wasn't that I've turned my back on that necessarily. It's that I, I've made it more robust, right? And, and so it's this healing of a relationship between myself and God myself and others, right? Which encompasses our political and social relationships and creation itself, right? So our creation with the land, the water, the air um, that God has created, this is all a part of what God longs to redeem and make well. Yeah. Yeah. So bring this down for me. And I don't mean down like, because you're high, but down um, as in like, make it something that's palpable in in smaller form right because i can easily spin this off into it into sort of global realities and mm-hmm. uh, statewide realities and i'm you know because i'm sensitive to some of the the, polit- the state politics in the state of washington where i'm where i am or even the even the community but i, I mean more microscopic bring it down to the to the lived life of everyday people um like you and myself doing trying to be good fathers good partners um, you know, good employer employees or employers. How, what does this mean on a day to day basis? Yeah, um, let me just say, say up front um, that when we talk about healing and reconciliation, when we talk about conflict and peace, we're talking about very human realities. People experience these things on an everyday, every week basis. Every one of us who's listening to this right now can probably point or identify a person within the last week where we would say, oh, I feel like I had, I am in conflict with that person. Um, and I remember uh, early in my ministry, um, one, I've, I was a, <laughs> right out of grad school at Vanderbilt. I went into a ministry doing um, food justice and food relief work, but I was also a pastor to a, a predominantly large 
uh, low income and uh, congregation um, that had was probably about 50% homeless. And occasionally on Sunday evenings, there would be fights that would erupt. Um, and I found myself instead of like running to go grab a security guard, interjecting myself that my five, eight, 135 pound frame in between these fights, I found myself um, not, not in a personality type that avoids conflict, but when I see others in it, I engage it. So that was number one, a recognition of myself, knowing myself. Um, the second was I had all of these, you know, I studied nonviolent movements of social change at Vanderbilt. I, I joined Christian peacemaker teams for a summer in Israel and Palestine. I was starting to build up kind of a reservoir of understanding and experience. And when I moved and was a pastor in Hawaii, in Kona, um, there was a couple at my church who I uh, who were in conflict with one another. And I felt like I had the, the head knowledge to be able to put them together in a room and hold a conversation so that we could work it out. Mm-hmm. And we could leave that open dialogue with, uh, uh, with a better way of moving forward. And within 20 minutes, it had erupted, broken <laughs> down. There was screaming, there was uh, yelling, there was interruption. Um, and I realized then that as much as the head knowledge I had around conflict and peace and reconciliation, understanding the gospel, I had no skill set, no toolbox, no way of actually creating a space in, in which people could come together to be heard and to move forward in a better way. And, and after that moment, I realized I had never been equipped as a pastor in conflict work. I had never been equipped as a, as a, a student or in my pastoral ministry to be able to engage conflicts in healthy ways. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that most pastors in the Nazarene church have that same experience where, where we have faced with challenging conversations um, or difficult relationships or outright conflict um, that has now triangulated and become two groups, right? Or identity politics that have um, now started to to drive a wedge within congregations, right? We we as pastors have not been equipped to be able to deal with that. Um, and so I began under that experience of that conflict erupting, um, building up that skill set. Um, so I ended up, um, I got a graduate certificate in conflict transformation um, from Eastern Mennonite University. I became uh, trained as a mediator uh, and a peace circle facilitator in the field of restorative justice. Um, and so those are now uh, tools that I use, um, both as a director of a nonprofit, uh, secular nonprofit that's not necessarily associated with any one religious tradition, um, but also as the director of compassion and justice here in the Hawaii Pacific District. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> It's like there's very few people just for those that are listening in. There's very few people that I know um, that have seamlessly woven together the robust convictions that Eric has into literally like how they spend most of their time. So like he, he literally does this for a living, for a vocation. And deeply and personally believes in, in what he's saying, which if, if that's not coming across, I'm here to verify and, you know, and, and uh, reiterate that. Eric, here, here's, a, here's a critical question that most, peop, most of our listeners have. 
um, because it asks, it takes the imagination that our guests bring to the table, an imagination in your case for a different understanding of the gospel, and it asks a question that is often uncomfortable for people that have done the hard work of understanding what ought to be happening, right? And that is a question about hopefulness, right? How hopeful are you that your understanding of the gospel is something that can be taught, trained, and discipled in your average church? Um, and if you could put a practical sort of layer on that, then what must we do in light of that hopefulness? Hmm. So I'll start by saying part of part of my hope um, rests theologically in the resurrection of the dead. Um, that that this kind of end, right? That the ends that the church is a part of, that all things will be reconciled to God's self. Um, gives us a mission to join in that work. And it took me 10 years to move from this, this moment of celebration, right? Uh, when I was a teenager to this moment of grief under very similar cir circumstances, right? Uh, uh, when violence occurred um, to, to get to that point. And so the second, the second thing is patience. The, so hope is a virtue, but hope also requires a type of steadfast patience that, that God's work will be done. Um, so that's, those are two. Those are grounded in kind of a theological foundations for how to move and live in this world, <laughs> which I think are actually really important. Um, the, the other thing would be I've, what is, a, is language. Um, Using non-judgmental language is something that I've learned, started to learn to do. Um, people seem to hear me better if I, if I'm not throwing stones, like <laughs> verbal stones at them. Um, I've yet to ever see someone change their mind in an argument uh, or change their behavior because you were proven right. Um, I've never had that experience. I have seen people change when they've been able to listen to someone others, someone else's point of view um, with humility, right? Another Christian virtue. <laughs> um, and part of that for me was a learning process of not being so verbose um, and using words like Christian pacifism is the only way to um, render the gospel effective, right? Um, Instead, I've started to, to transition that language to, as humans, we all want to be healthy. As humans, we all strive for, for wellness and health and right relationships with one another. We feel less stress. We feel, um, we feel less anxiety. Uh, we feel we have more purpose when our relationships are marked by health and peace, right? The same is true for nation states. We feel more safe and secure, right? When our relationships with other nations are in good standing. <laughs> um, and uh, so this movement away from language of say, um, Christian pacifism is what our Nazarene essentials demands, um, our holiness language demands, which I actually do believe is true, um, to 
we should all be working towards God's peace in this world. And here's where it is within scripture. And that reconciliation is the mission of God and it's the vocation of God's people. So what can we do together in order to bring about reconciliation? Eric's story helps us understand that the gospel is good news for all of life. That despite the inconsistencies of what he was taught growing up, today he can faithfully embody this gospel through his work in reconciliation. As we listened to his pastoral ministry focus on maintaining right relations, we were reminded of why we think he is a guerrilla pastor. Eric's story both challenges the one-size-fits-all pastoral approach to ministry that's sermon-centric and offers a new way forward, a way that is potentially even more faithful to the gospel message. We thank him for sharing his story, and if you're interested to hear more, there is a premium unedited version of his conversation with my co-host Ryan Fasani that will be out next week. Currently, our premium episodes are offered both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for the low cost of a dollar a month. We appreciate your consideration as you support the work of our ministry in platforming the stories of guerrilla pastors whose diverse ministry work is something we want to celebrate. Join us on our next regularly scheduled episode as I sit down with my co-hosts to unpack everything that we learned from the story you heard today. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing so others might discover this podcast as well. I've been your host, Josiah, and I would like to thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. 